Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. Yes, there's a lot of COVID going around. Our daughter in Colorado has it, so she and her son and husband went to get tested, and after standing in line for 30 minutes, they ran out of jokes, so they called me, and I told them jokes for another 30 minutes while they... and. Halfway through that, my son-in-law said, how do you remember all of these? And my daughter said, I think he's reading them out of a book. (laughs) She knew my secret. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and he has begun to have very conflicting interactions with the Jewish religious officials. We started this in last week's lesson, in chapter 11, where they came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you do whatever it is you're doing? And he said, I'll ask you a question, and if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And he said, by what authority did John the Baptist do his stuff? Was it from God or was it from man? And the Leaders got into this little huddle and they started thinking, you know, if we say it was from God, he's going to say, then why didn't you follow it? And if we say it's from man, the people are going to be upset because they really admired John the Baptist. So they said, "Eh, we're not going to answer your question. And Jesus said, then I'm not going to answer yours. He then proceeded to tell them a parable. The man builds a uh, farm. He builds the infrastructure, he leases us out to tenants, and he leaves. And then he sends somebody to collect his part of the harvest, and they beat that person up. He sends somebody else, and they kill him. They send somebody else, they beat him up. And he finally says, I'll send my son, surely they will acknowledge him and give what is due. Instead, the tenants said, hmm... This is the son, the heir. If we kill him, then all this property will be ours. So they killed the son. And Jesus asked the question, how is the owner going to respond when he shows up to deal with these people? The obvious implication is that the Jewish leadership should have been productive and producing fruit for the owner of the property, namely God. And now God's son, the Messiah, has shown up and they're going to kill him. That was the end of last week's lesson. So, picking up in verse 13, we continue with these interactions and it's the... Jews turn to attack Jesus for a while. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay? We know exactly what they're doing here. This is not a question trying to understand a topic. This is a question to trap somebody. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true 
and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, all of that is true. Everything that they just said about him is true, but obviously they're just flattering him, right? We know that you're a great and wonderful teacher. We're going to ask you a question. Now, it is interesting because we just mentioned the question about the authority of John the Baptist, and it says they were worried about what the people would think. They, in essence, are the opposite of what they are describing Jesus as being. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, there's the question. What's wrong with this question? Well, let's remind ourselves. The Romans have occupied Palestine. They have occupied the Middle East, having taken it over after the Jews had revolted against each other. We had the whole Maccabees and all of that stuff. So the Romans occupied the territory. The Jews are prisoners under Roman authority. And they come to Jesus and say, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Why did they do this? Well, he's got two possible answers. One, he's going to say, yes, pay them. In which case, all the Jews are going to hate him. Mission accomplished. Number two, he could say, no, don't pay those wicked, evil Romans these taxes. In which case, they go running back to the Romans. Remember, this is the Herodians. They are the buddies of Herod. They go running back to the Romans and said, this guy's a revolutionary. He's telling the people not to pay the taxes. The Romans come down, grab him, toss him into jail or something. He's out of the picture. Either way, it's a win-win for the Pharisees and the Herodians. Do you see the trap that they have set for him? Only two possible answers, and either one of them, they're going to win. But knowing their hypocrisy, he knew what they were up to. I don't even think it would take the Son of God to figure out what they were up to. But he, being the Son of God, understood their heart, and he knew what they were up to. We actually had a discussion a while back, I don't know if you remember, about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from a Greek acting term. I am in a play and I put on a mask and I'm playing a part. It's not really me. I am playing a part. And when we walk around this world and we put on our mask and we play a part so you don't know who I really am, I am playing the hypocrite. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Why are you doing this? Why are they doing this? To trap him. Okay, that's an easy part. 
bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. A Daenerys would have been a small coin. It's probably a tenth of an ounce of silver. It would have been considered a day's wages. Okay, throughout the New Testament, we see people being paid in Daenerys. It's actually interesting because it was a very stable Roman coin for a long time. When Nero comes along, he's going to start diluting it with some other stuff, so it's not quite as valuable as it once was. But it is a Roman coin. Let's keep going. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Because the coin has a face on it. Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's back up just a smidgen. Whose picture was on the coin? Caesar. For a good Jew, the image of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, it wasn't Caesar Augustus, but he was deity. Caesar's picture on that coin is actually a form of idolatry to a good Jew. I have this strange picture in my head. I'm just making this up. Okay, he says, show me a Daenerys. And it says they bring him one. Okay, I, I kind of get the impression they're going, who's got, a, who's got a, a Roman coin on him? You know, they, they, they probably have pockets full of them, but they don't want people to know they have pockets full of them because it's a Roman coin. It is idolatrous to have one. But they round one up from somewhere, some Roman in the group or something. Remember a couple of chapters ago, like two, when Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers? You show up to give your tithe and your offering to the temple. And you pull out your Daenerys to give in the temple. And the Jews are going to go, we can't possibly take that in our temple. You've got to exchange it for a good Jewish coin. And we've got a really good exchange rate, good for us. They were making money off this. So they weren't embarrassed to take the shekel. They just weren't going to let you offer it in the temple because it was idolatrous. So Jesus says, whose picture is on it? And obviously the answer is Caesar. And he says, then that belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. I don't care. But render to Caesar, but render to God the things of God. Now, here's a trick question that's not a trick question. I pop up here any human being in the world, any one of them, red and yellow, black and white, I don't care. 
I prop up here one human being, and I turn to you and I ask you the question, whose image is on the coin? I mean, the person. And what is the answer to that question? God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I don't care about your money. Well, he does. Jesus actually has lots of discussion about money, using it properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what he really cares about is what are you doing with that which is made in the image of God? And guess what? The Pharisees and the Herodians are not really that concerned about. Back to the last parable. The master, the owner of the property, has left, and he has left the tenants in charge. Remember our discussion last week? They wanted to be owners. They didn't want to be tenants. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to have the power and the authority, and God expected them to bear fruit. God expected the Jewish leadership to be giving to God that which is God's. They're trying to trap Jesus with discussions about Caesar. And he's telling them, you're not giving to God that which is God's. This is actually an amazing verse, I might add. And we could have lengthy discussions about this because much of Western uh, political theological studies grows out of this verse. It is the acknowledgement that Caesar does have authority in a particular area. That there is such a thing as a state and it has certain authority. Now, Peter tells us in 2 Peter that you are to be obedient to the government for the Lord's sake. Let me let you in on a little secret. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to God the things that are God. Who owns it all? God. But God is telling you to give to Caesar that which is owed to Caesar. Now, we can complain all we want and all that stuff, but we are called to give to Caesar. But more important than that, we are called to give to God. The question is, to the leadership here, is, are you giving that which belongs to God, to God? If you remember, we ended last week's lesson with a very brief discussion, because we're going to get into this in chapter 13. You know, it's easy to look back and say, you Crazy people, why didn't you recognize that this was the Son of God? Why weren't you ready for the Messiah to show up? But in chapter 13, we're going to talk about the second coming, and the end of that is going to be, you and I need to be ready. And here's the question. Are we any more ready than the leadership at Jesus' time was ready to recognize the coming of 
Jesus. I hope we are. I would like to think we are. But the question is this. Are we rendering to God the things that belong to God? Story number two for the day. And Sadducees, you know about all these different groups, right? We have Pharisees. We've been over this before. The Pharisees were very religious. They were very separatist, okay? We're going to remove ourselves from the sin of this world. There's too much sin out there. We're going to obey the law. And to make sure we obey the law, we're going to build a law around the law to make sure we don't get close to breaking the law. And they had a very high opinion of themselves, but the people actually admired them because they were doing God's stuff. The Herodians were Jews that were kind of in cahoots with the Roman authorities. You know, go along to get along to go along or go along, get along. I mean, whatever it is, right? Let's just kind of work with the system. The Sadducees in modern terminology would be the more liberal believers. They kind of believe Jewish stuff, okay? But as this passage is going to show us, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe there's anything after death. Now, Paul is going to use this to his advantage later when he kind of plays the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other because Paul had been a good Pharisee. Anyway, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question. Another question. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever had somebody come to you with a question about Christianity that they didn't really want an answer to? They just thought they had you. They thought they had you trapped. Nobody knows the answer to this question. Can God build a rock that he can't lift? It's a stupid question. We can have a long discussion about it. But we have these acquaintances who have this one question, as if somehow this proves it. I suspect the Sadducees had been using this question for a long time on their Pharisee friends. So, and they ask him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What in the world does that mean? Go back to the Old Testament, okay? I've explained this to my high school students in my world history class, and they just think this is gross, Okay, just saying. I have a brother. I do have a brother. My brother dies and he has no heir. The Jewish community was very, well, it was very important to them that the families continue on. 
Remember, they go into the promised land and the tribes are allocated land and the sub-tribes are allocated land and the families are allocated land and there are very strict rules. You can rent it out, but you can never really get rid of it because the land belongs to the family. The family is important. We want the families to continue. So in the Old Testament, God gave them a law. I have a brother. My brother gets married, my brother dies, and has no heir. It is my obligation to take the wife of my brother, and I might have a wife, that's beside the point, to take the wife of my brother and produce an heir for my brother. You see? So my, I go with my sister-in-law, I have a male child, that male child is not my male child. That male child belongs to my brother, so his family, his group continues to prosper. That's the idea, okay? Are my high school students weird, or is that gross? That's just interesting, but that's the way it worked. We actually see this in the Old Testament. People were supposed to do it, and they didn't do it, and it got them in trouble. So, here is the, the Sadducees' question. Let me just walk you through it before we read it, okay? There are seven brothers, okay? This is not seven brides for seven brothers. <laughs> this is one bride for seven brothers. Because the first brother marries somebody, and he croaks. So the second brother has to marry the wife. It's his obligation, and he croaks. Then the third son has to marry the girl, and he croaks, etc., etc., etc. We saw this in the Old Testament. Do you remember? Huh? Ruth, that's the good example. The bad example is ends up with Tamar. Okay? She marries somebody. He's a loser. He dies. Marries somebody, the brother. He doesn't want anything to do with her. He dies. And Judah, the father, is very reluctant to give her his third son because there's a pattern here, right? I might also add, this isn't really a good thing for the new husband. I mean, he gets to sleep with another woman. I guess that would be fun. But look at what happens. I have a brother. My brother dies, and he has no heir. If he has no heir, who gets all of his stuff? Me. <laughs> I'm rich. But if I have a son by his wife, and that son is the, considered by the law the son of my brother, all of a sudden I lose half my stuff. Who wants that? You see the problem. That is what plays out in the story of Ruth, by the way. So anyway, this bride has married the first, married the second, married the, the, married the seventh, and they've all died. These are the kind of questions people ask when they don't have really good imaginations. 
because this is kind of a hypothetical thing. But the woman finally dies. She's worn out. She's had seven husbands. <laughs> and here's their question for Jesus. She gets to heaven, and she has seven husbands. So in heaven, whose wife is she? Does she share a cozy apartment with all seven of her husbands? There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. They're not attacking Jesus. They're attacking the whole idea of the resurrection. This doesn't make any sense, they say. She can't possibly live in her tiny apartment in heaven with seven husbands. Therefore, ipso facto, there must not be a resurrection. I spent all week thinking of the next sentence. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Okay? You find a problem in your life. And this may be a bold statement, and I could be wrong about this. Why do we not know the answer? Because we don't understand the scripture and we don't understand the power of God. Think about that for a while. God has revealed to us in his word how the world operates and what we need to know to prosper in that world. Okay? Prosper not economically, but prosper in the eyes of God. God is powerful. How many times have we gone to plan B because we got tired of waiting on God for plan A because we didn't really think God could cut it? You know, God, I know that you promised me a child, but my wife is 80 years old. I'm 90 years old. How about if I go sleep with the Egyptian handmaiden because I know, God, you can't deliver that's Abraham, by the way, and Hagar, and the offspring was Ishmael. How many times have we gone to plan B because we did not believe in the power of God? Forget you. How many times have I gone to plan B because I did not believe or I did not understand the word of God? That's his opening sentence to them. You know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. How many angels in heaven are there today? I don't know the answer. But let's call that number X. I was a math major. How many angels are there going to be in heaven a hundred years from now? X. Why? They do not propagate. 
They are created. Angels do not have sex and produce baby angels. And no, you don't become an angel when you go to heaven. And no, every time a bell rings, an angel doesn't get their wings. I hate to pop your bubble. Angels are created beings. They don't have marriage. Now, this may pop your bubble some. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be married. It's like one well-known author in his book about marriage said, marriage is not forever, it's just for life. Now, I believe you will know your spouse, you will enjoy being around each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you're not going to be married. Let me give you a little side note. Why do we get married to begin with? Well, if you look at general teaching, it's companionship, it's procreation to bring about the next generation, and the third one is that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. We show up to heaven, guess what? Nobody's gonna be staring at the picture. Why? Because the reality is standing in front of you. I mean, just think about this. Right here is the most magnificent building on the planet, whatever it is, whatever your particular flavor of the most magnificent building. And you're standing in front of that building, the building's right there, and you're staring at a picture of that building on your phone. Why would you do that? When all you have to do is turn around and there's the building. Why would you be interested in a picture of the relationship with Christ and his church when it's right there for you to look at. So Jesus tells them, you don't understand because when you get to heaven, we will not be married. There will be no husband and wife relationship. Now, we can have a long discussion about that. There's no more children, so the and the relationship, the companionship, I think will be there so much, it'll shock us. Anyway. As for the dead being raised, so they threw their trick question, and Jesus just batted it away. He said, you don't understand Scripture. You don't understand the power of God. Here is the answer to your question. Back to last week's lesson. By what authority do you say these things? Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it said, the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority. He does have authority because he is the Son of God. 
He just batted their question away. He answered the question. He actually gave them the answer to the question. It's a stupid question. That was kind of his answer. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You remember, right? Moses is out tending his flocks, well, his father-in-law's flocks. He's out in the wilderness and he walks up and this bush is burning. It is burning, but it is not being consumed. And Moses knows this isn't normal. And out of the fire comes this voice. Moses takes off his shoes because he's on holy ground and God gives him a commission, tells him to go down to Egypt and bring his people out. Well, who the heck are you? I mean, let's face it. Voice coming out of a burning bush telling you to do something? You might have some questions. And the voice says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, we know these are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. But also remember, there's 400 years between Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all dead, long dead. But he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Sadducees, why would God tell Moses, I am the God of Abraham, if Abraham was dead and it no longer mattered who was the God of Abraham? Why would it matter that I am the God of Isaac if Isaac's dead and it doesn't matter? And the same with Jacob. The fact that he would say, I am the God, not I was the God. You know, I was the God that, was, that Abraham followed. I am the God. We can have another discussion about the I am part of it, but we won't do that. I am the God of Jacob, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Sadducees, you are quite wrong. I actually like this discussion. He does answer their question. He answers their foolish question. He sets them on the correct path and tells them the truth, and he tells them they're wrong. Now, can we make it through the next one? And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the most important of all? Now, since we're going to run out of time here in a moment, let me tell you how this is going to end. Jesus likes this guy. He does. This guy is asking a question because he wants to know an answer. He does. He's not setting a trap. He's not putting the bear trap out there waiting for Jesus to step in it. He actually wants to know. He's been sitting here listening to these arguing 
And he's going, you know what? Jesus has good answers. Let me ask him a question. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Question, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let's look at those one by one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. We have mentioned in here hundreds of times because it shows up hundreds of times. The Jews knew what a biological heart was, and that's not what they're talking about here. In Jewish discussion, the heart is the center of your being, your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's who you are. And all of that is to be focused on God. It is to show, demonstrate love toward God. Now here's the question. How do I love God with all my heart? Now, we're going to run out of time. So let me let you in on a little secret. There was this man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a monk, a very studious monk. But he would go to confession, be a good Catholic. He would, be going, he would go to confession hours a day. It drove his superior crazy. Martin, you're a monk. You can't get into enough trouble in one day to have to come to confession for hours. You can't do it. Come back when you've done some big sin. But Martin Luther understood this verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, here's a question for you. Do not raise your hand. If you do raise your hand, you're a liar. Okay? How many of you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Now, we may try, but Martin Luther knew he didn't do that. Martin Luther knew he didn't measure up. And it wasn't until Martin Luther, studying the book of Romans, discovered that salvation is by faith from first to last, that he was then empowered by God to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you, in your own power and strength, strive to fulfill this in your own power and strength, you are going to fail miserably. But when you allow the power of God to enter your life, then you begin to love God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are commanded to do this. We are told to do this. Don't leave this room thinking, oh, we're saved by grace, therefore I don't have to love my neighbor as myself. Ha! I can hate them as much as I want. No. You were told to love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Next week we will pick up here and we will have a long discussion about what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because we're not going to do it justice in the next five minutes. The thing to remember, in case you don't make it next week, is we're going to get to the end of this passage. And unlike the last passage where Jesus turned to the Sadducees and says, you're wrong, Jesus is going to turn to this man and say, you are close to the kingdom. Because at least you're asking the right questions, and you're asking the right questions with the right intent. And it says, it's just kind of interesting. And after that, this is verse, the last sentence of verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Here are the smartest people on the planet and they're up against God. I'll let you in on a little secret. God's going to win. Let's close in prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to love with our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.